Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be talking with award-winning poet, performer, and librettist Douglas Kearney, who is the author of six books of poetry, teaches writing at CalArts, and is one of the featured readers for this year's New Orleans Poetry Festival, happening this weekend, among many other things. Hey, how's it going today, Douglas? It's going well, David. Thank you. Well, man, I know you're going to be here in a couple of weeks for the Poetry Festival in New Orleans as a featured mm-hmm. reader. Uh, how are you feeling about that? Oh, I'm excited about it. I've never been in New Orleans before. And, um, yeah, it's a, and then also just looking at the list of different participants and panels and, you know, the other readers, it's, it's, it's really going to be an exciting event. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Um, to kind of do a deep dive, I've got some fun questions I want to ask you today. Um, the first of which is, uh, I was wondering what's the first poem you read that really had an effect on you and, and could you describe how it made you feel? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, I think the one that I first read as a kid that really affected me was probably Shel Silverstein's Me Who and the Exactly What. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about that because I haven't you know, necessarily been thinking about it much recently. But when you ask the question, it was sort of the thing that I guess prepared my brain for falling in love with the work of folks like Harriet Mullen or, you know, the signifying game, you know, signifying games or like language games. Um, And I think that it was just the idea that these words could mean two or three things at once and that you could sort of juggle them around and shuffle them around. And at the time, I didn't think of that as being a real thread in poetry. I thought it was just this one thing that was happening. And so now, you know, when I think when I think about the kinds of work that I like or the kinds of work that, you know, I I write or try to write through, it's usually work that has that kind of play to it, but really wants to use it for serious um, or, you know, sort of, I guess, sort of social commentary or cultural criticism. No, I get that. That that's interesting about like kind of the formulation of your your poems, which is something I'm I'm interested in hearing a little bit more uh, about. Um, your poems are really fun to look at. They have really dense and sometimes very dark material within them, but they're they're really fun uh, in, in a lot of ways, very playful on the page and what you do there. Do you have fun writing them? Like, what, what's your emotional state when you're writing poems these days? <laughs> the ones that are really dense on the page. Uh... Or, or, or playful on the page. Um, I, I'm working with, I guess, what I would call, you know, with like a little registered, fake registered trademark at the end. <laughs> for me, uh, you know, a poetics of accumulation. It's uh, The example I always use is like, if you've ever watched that old public access television uh, painting show Bob with Bob Ross, mm-hmm. like, you know, the show lasts about 22 minutes. He's painting for the first 18 and it doesn't look like anything. You're like, I don't know what this is going to be. And then somewhere around like 18 minutes and 23 seconds, he, he makes a green dot and suddenly like, oh my gosh, it's a forest, right? <laughs> and, so, and so when I write the poems that are like really playful on the page, it's a very similar sort of feeling because I don't want any one thread or any one block of text to sort of carry the entirety of the message. So like I'm working or the entirety of the idea. So they're all like fragments of it. Mm-hmm. And it's only through their sort of interplay uh, with the poet David St. John, uh, you saw it's called like a kind of a mobile effect, mm-hmm. right? That you see like that it, that it kind of coheres. So a lot of the times when I'm working in that, in that mode, 
I'm terrified that it's just not going to be anything. <laughs> like you know, the first, the first, you know, three quarters of it, I'm just sort of like, all right, something's going to have to lock into place here, um, and that's fun, uh, but it's also this sort of like exercise in faith. Yeah, you know, yeah. No, I get that, and um, it's interesting, kind of that that playful nature is also you know experimental. You're on the frontier of all these things, whether or not they they turn out working. Um, I know you edited a um, collection of the best experimental writing for 2015. Yeah, back, back. Yeah, and I I was interested what you think it means to be an experimental writer today. Like what? Because it's meant so many things in the past, and everybody's always been on the edge of something. But what does it mean right now in you know 2018? Well, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of, like, most of us talk about experimental writing, and we are, and we're thinking of a of a style. But I really think, honestly, I really think that experimental is a process. Um, if 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 I move from these kinds of performative, typographical poems, and then decide to write really really traditional, say, sonnets. Mm-hmm then that, for me, as an individual, is an experiment. Um, and I think that, that one of the things that, when editing that anthology, for some of the pieces that we selected, I was thinking about the poem in hand um, in the trajectory of that writer's work, you know, the, the piece of writing in hand in the tra- trajectory of that writer's work. And so, like, there were people for whom I was like, now this, for this person, is an experiment. Hmm. Um, and so there were a few that got in where I was really kind of testing out that idea, testing out that thesis and seeing how, I, how it felt to have it in that space. But I mean, I think that, you know, in, in 2018, in this particular moment, um, it's not necessarily a new idea to use techniques from, say, social media or even visual forms from social media uh, to generate poems. You know, the internet as a source of uh, poetic composition, you know, whether you're talking about Flarf or, or um, you know, other sort of, or, or more like, um, un, un, or, or, or more, or I should say less uh, performatively mediative uh, appropriation techniques, right? Yeah. Like that stuff's been going on for a long time. But I will honestly say that one of the things that I'm thinking about um, right now um is if we're thinking about the possibilities of pulse in a poem, like you know what a lot of people identify as meter, but you know not necessarily iambic pentameter, but just like pulse. How many accents are in a line? How many beats are in a line? Like how does an emoji communicate? How does an emoji folk, uh, function in that kind of a poetic line? In other words, like here's an image that we can ascribe language to, but that language isn't necessarily 100% clear. Um, like, you know, a winking emoji, is that saying, just kidding? Is that just saying, wink? Like, what is the actual language that we're applying to that? And so, therefore, if I have, going back to the example of a sonnet, if I have a, a, a line of a sonnet, and in the place of what would be a two-syllable word, I put an emoji do we read those, that emoji as like syllables? Yeah. You know, and so that to me is really interesting. And also, of course, um, I think that right now, a question around speed, uh, you know, is important mm-hmm. um, in the era of like hot take and immediate response um, 
time and permanence, I think, are, are things that are, that are rife for experimentation. What happens if you have um, a poem that really assembles or you assemble it over a really long time, but publicly, slowly? What happens if you have a hot take, but like, you know, I think it's a Snapchat, you know, like it disappears. Um, what is the book of poetry in a moment of sort of disposable text? Interesting. Okay, that, that, that's fascinating. You've given me a lot to think on just in those statements about uh, emojis, for one thing, thinking about the ambiguity with using them and just how people can imbue whatever they want onto them. And you have little control of that. So how do you set those definitions with, with the meter, with the pulse right there? That, that's interesting. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, thinking about that social media, I've been I was rereading your 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 book uh, from 2009, The Black Automaton. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and thinking about which some of the things that you're doing in there, some of the strategies you have in terms of uh, the Facebook newsfeed and kind of that collage effect. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. You know, I mean, I I, I like the idea of you know at that at that point, I wasn't and I wasn't on. Facebook. I don't think I got on Facebook until a little bit after that. Yeah. Um, but the the ways that I think about a lot of the poems in the Black Automaton, because because most of them I started in like 2006, mm. and um, you know, there's sentence mapping. You know, definitely a part of that. Um, the idea of the flow chart, and I remember I did one, and, and like the first one I ever did didn't actually make it into the book, but I remember showing Nicole, that's the woman who married me, um, this this draft, and she was, and I was like, oh, you know, baby, this is like the, either like the, 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 the coolest thing I've ever written or the most ridiculous, maybe it's both, <laughs> right? And then she just looked at it for like three seconds, and she was like, oh, it's a map of the hip-hop consciousness, and walked out of the room. <laughs> I was just like, oh, like, uh, Okay. <laughs> I was like, that's what it is. So I mean, qualifying. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the space of those poems, what I'm really interested in are, are are two or three things. Like one is the idea of multiple voices in a space, and there goes that sort of uh, that's that's like the that's like the I guess the entry level to the Facebook newsfeed, mm -hmm. right? There's multiple voices in a space. But because it's quoting song lyrics, right, it also has the feel of, like, um, ads or links or, like, oh, watch this video, right? When you quote something, in my, in my, in my sense of things, when you quote something, you, 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 you want to highlight the part of the quote, you know, the, the part of the, ultimate, of, the, of the full text mm -hmm. that you've quoted, but you're also kind of carrying in the rest of that thing with you. Right. Like you don't you kind of don't get to just quote this part without sort of engaging in a relationship with the, with the whole text. Huh. So like so in that way, those those quotes are acting as like links or like an image. I can see where that would kind of come come through. And the last thing that I'm really interested in with those poems that I was really interested in with those poems is simultaneity. Hmm. Right. Like, so how do you like it's easy to imagine interruption right in a poem um but it's harder to imagine like two things happening at once um and you know in in the text right i mean like we can understand it sort of narratively as it unspools like if i say this is happening as this is happening but in the actual act of two different threads of text do they overlap or do they 
act in sequence? Do they wait their turn or do they interrupt? Or, I mean, or, or do they like talk over each other? Yeah. And I think that that also has, you know, a similarity to kind of teeming quality of a page where, you know, it's updating as you go, it's refreshing as you go, um, you know, there's a GIF over here and it's switching around. Like when you're reading, you know, a Facebook newsfeed, at one level, your eye is seeing the entirety of the screen as a thing that's happening. And I think that's why some people just can't, don't want to engage with it because it's just too much. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, I think I, 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 I like that formulation. Uh, I can't, I can't claim it on the front end, but seeing it, um, in dialogue with that now, um, you know, as a way of, as a way of sort of thinking through, I, I, I could definitely think through that even more. Yeah, no, I, I think so. Just right there. You're, you're working in that quantum realm, which is, which is interesting. Um, speaking of like descriptions of, of work, I, I thought my a fun question might be, um, what are some, some words that people have used to describe your writing that you can't stand? <laughs> um, uh, gimmick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ooh, that's so like, that just disregards like everything, every effort put into it. That's just like, yeah. ooh, zing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, and I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of the idea of that, of, of people thinking that that's what's happening. And I mean, there's, from my perspective, I, I go through a lot of choices um, before I make a poem do um, the kind of, again, performative typography. Like, I, I, I feel like I'm pretty rigorous and, ro- and robust about that process yeah. um so when somebody says gimmick it's exactly as you say david it's like oh okay so none of that mattered <laughs> and it's just kind of like all right um and and that's just not going to people just aren't going to engage um and uh yeah 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 that's i think that's i think that's the the, the biggest the biggest one i i feel like really like i've been fortunate in that uh the people who read the work um, and then, you know, write about it or talk to me about it or ask questions about it, um, you know, are, you know, being engaged, um, you know, or are, you know, working with it in a way that I think is generative and isn't a slog for them. So I, I, I don't have a lot of complaints about, about that kind of thing. But yeah, gimmick is the one that even before I saw it creep up in a, in a review, once I was, it was already in my head. It's like, you, you gotta make this, this, the, the typography can't be a special effect. Yeah. It can't be a gimmick. Um, so yeah. I, I get that. Cause I know like, uh, in poetry classes, you'll like see the, uh, someone made a butterfly out of it and you just like, you yeah. lose all the words and it's just like, it's not yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, exactly. do you, do you write every day? Do you write poetry every day? I don't write poetry every day. And that's been a real. I'm, I'm so glad you 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 sussed out that distinction because that's been one that I've been talking to people about. That it's like it is easier to write every day than I think a lot of us you know imagine. But yeah. I, but but most of us feel like if you're writing, it means that I sat down and I produced a draft. <laughs> right, right, right. And like, and like, and honestly, a lot of us are like not even thinking I produced a draft. You think like I produced the thing. I'm gonna adjust the font, you know, maybe change the line break. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> right. And and I've been and I've had conversations with folks about like you know what are what's the equivalent to like a poet playing scales. You know, like yeah. what's 
you know, what's the equivalent to like a poet stretching? And, um, and, and so, like, I think that, you know, you can write every day. The, the poet Ahmad Jamal Johnson, who's a, who's a good friend of mine, in his first book, uh, Red Summer, he talked about, well, he, he talked about, regarding his first book, Red Summer, that one of the things that he would do is he would just take a sentence, a line of poetry, say, and he would just write it over and over, literally the same line, and physically write it over and over. No copy and pasting. He's writing in his journal. And he would do that for, like, 20 or 25 times, 20, 25 times in a row, right, in the same line. And then after 25 times, he would allow himself to change one word. So then he'd change one word, and then he'd do that for 20 times or so, and then he could change another word. And so, like, this kind of process, right, like, that's writing. Yeah. Now, now, you know, a person might not get up from the table and feel like, well, now I've completed a piece of poetry. <laughs> but in that time, he is thinking about the rhythm of that sentence. He is making choices about, like, he knows he's got like three more times, and then he gets to take, change one word, right? Think about that kind of focus. Think about that kind of fidelity to the sentence, to the line. And I'm like, that's writing at a really concentrated level, I think. Um, you know, he might, after a half an hour, have a stanza, or he might simply have four discrete sentences that he doesn't even necessarily see as ultimately being um, a poem in himself or the beginning of a poem. Yeah. But he has written, and he's learned something about what he's thinking through. So I think that, I mean, I've tried to do a better job of just writing yeah. every day, even if it's like a line that's just expressing a moment of of frustration, right? Um, like, like there's a, a line that I wrote in, in my journal that says, slang is a gum doll, professor. <laughs> and I, and like I just like, like left that there. Um, but then I did that maybe three or four weeks ago. And then on Monday, I was just kind of leafing through my journal. I said, oh, what if I take that as a title? And I wrote something. I wrote a poem. I don't know that I love that poem, yeah. um, but I wrote to it, and I accomplished some things that I'm interested in thinking through in terms of, like, rhyme scheme and sort of rhythmic pattern and that kind of thing. Yeah, no, kind of strategic, like, moving forward, which I think is, is great because some people are like, I have this draft and I'm going to perfect this draft, but right. I think, you know, having those exercises and trying to, like, you know, like painting or sketching, I think you're, you're doing models or you're doing things in order to eventually incorporate them in a way that's useful. Exactly. You, you had mentioned talking about performance and different veins of, of kind of, of thinking about your, your work. And I know you use, um, a lot of different techniques, especially when you're out there and you're reading, you use videography, kind of this polyphony, a lot of different things. And one of the things I was interested in is hearing about when you conceive of a poem or you're working those things through, what type of frameworks or analogies are you thinking about? Are you thinking about in musical terms? Are you thinking about in like storyboarding? Like what's really helpful for you? Oh gosh, man. You, these are like the, the perfect questions. I mean, at different points in my writing life, I've, I've, thought through typically either a musical metaphor or a theatrical metaphor. Mm -hmm. the theatrical metaphor was was fairly typical of the first um, half, I guess we could say, of, of my kind of public writing life, which was like, oh, okay, I've written this poem. Um, I am responsible for delivering this poem um, in a way that's, that's like, that honors the lines, not, 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 to suggest that, you know, I feel like if I've written a poem, I just read straight through it if there's no, 
you know, like as if there were no line breaks, but like I was trying to replicate a performance, right? Yeah. Um, and then there have been other moments where I've thought much more in a sort of a musical um, framework, but like live music in the sense of, okay, well, tonight, this is how I'm feeling about stuff. So I'm going to read this poem. And I think that the, in, in, in this way, or like I'm going to, it's going to be faster, it's going to be slower. And I think that the poems that are, um, uh, you know, again, those kinds of like uh, typographically dense ones lend themselves to the musical mode a little better. Yeah. Like I don't feel responsible for reading them in a particular order. For yeah. years, the poems from the Black Automaton that were kind of spread across the page, I would always have audience members sequence them. They'd put like a number next to this stanza or this line, um, and I would read that one first. Or they'd put two, three, four next to a stanza, and I would go and I'd read that, you know, second, third, and fourth in a row. And I never just picked up those poems and just read them however I felt like it. There's no, quote-unquote, master reading of those poems. Yeah. Um, but but after about four or five years working like that, I felt like, okay, well, I've learned a lot from going with the audience's reading. Um, and so now with these other poems, I feel like I can um, enter a space that's much more, I guess, improvisational at the moment of the piece. Um, I can repeat parts because I've now seen that audience members, that readers do that. Yeah. They go, oh, I want to go back to this part. So I was like, okay. So I kind of felt like I got permission from, you know, dozens of people who sequenced these poems. Um, and then I would reread their sequences and all of that. Um, I have a weird relationship to visual imagery yeah. um, in poems most recently. Um so that doesn't preclude storyboarding, but it definitely uh, changes a sense of storyboard. I've recently, maybe, if if you if I've written say sixteen or eighteen things in the past month, three of those things have been completely done by hand, um, like you know handwritten type, handwritten um, um, like, like penciling it out and then inking it. And there's something really interesting about that that kind of taps into my interest in comics and stuff like that. Um, but but for the most part, um, the visual, uh, you know, the visual image, not the poem as a visual, um, is something that I'm really trying to sort through. It's strange, but I oftentimes feel like um, that's the space where I feel the most sort of... Um, I'm trying not to use a melodramatic word because it's not the it's not the thing. But I I, I say allergic. Yeah. I, I usually say allergic. I just kind of had this sort of aller allergic reaction to like when I start looking at like and describing uh, you know s scenes or, or 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 furniture or you know I, I don't mean to make it sound like it's about describing quotidian things. It's like <laughs> anything. I could be talking about a dragon and suddenly I'm like. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, <laughs> you know the red yeah you know there's yeah, something yeah, yeah. i would much rather hear it i would much rather hear the dragon i would much rather or 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 make dragon uh the the word dragon clatter against some other word in a dragonly way yeah. <laughs> than 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 see the bat wings you know I, I, that's so so it's interesting to think about storyboarding and sound yeah um you know and and so yeah 
That's actually a, a fun challenge. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, I'm wondering what you're reading right now and if there's anything, any big projects that you're working on. Right now, I am reading Lely Long Soldiers Whereas. Um, I'm also reading Alexis Pauline Gum's M Archive. Um, I've at, and, I've, and I've gone back to reading a bunch of Carl Phillips um, as well. So those are the kind of three things that are on my, um, that are in my bag and mm. on my nightstand right now. Just just exploring those. And in terms of um, uh, projects, um, you know, I'm, I'm working on a couple of music, musically based collaborations. Um, there's a bunch of poems I've written that would possibly be in a manuscript called um, "Actors, Not Real People." Mm. Um, and then there's some some essays as well. Um, that I've been kind of dealing with, sort of like performative, well, performance essays or lectures. Okay. So that's kind of what I'm on. Interesting. So to kind of do a callback, you're going to be coming to New Orleans for the first time, and I'm wondering, uh, besides the festival itself, if there's anything ex- you're excited to kind of do or check out while you're here. I just want to, you know, feel this city. I mean, like, it's it's... You know, I mean, it's it's one of the great, you know, U.S. American cities. And originally, when when I was when I was anticipating attending, um, my the, the woman who married me, Nicole, she was she's from Louisiana, mostly mostly northern Louisiana, but she lived in Baton Rouge as well. Yeah. And so she was going to accompany me, and we were gonna, you know, make a trip of it. But then, you know, some things happened, and so we just weren't able to to kind of both attend. So when that happened, um, it kind of switched into being more of just kind of going there and just trying to absorb it. I know I'm not going to be there for a really long time. And, uh, and I also want to, you know, attend the festival. Like I want to, you know, I don't want to just kind of show up and be like, here, I'm a featured reading, you know, come to it but I'm not going to do anything else. Yeah. Um, so I want to, I want to go to a lot of the panels on some of the other days, but I know some folks down there who, who, you know, have been living down there or from there. So I'm, I'm hoping to kind of link up with some people and just sort of go like, okay, what, what's a thing that I can, that I can do. But honestly, I mean, like, like, you know, I just, I've been so busy recently that I'm, that I probably won't even like really look at a, a map you know, <laughs> yeah. until uh, next week and sort of like, oh, okay, this is what's, oh, yeah, I should make sure I do that. I mean, do you have any re- recommendations? Oh, I, I could I could drop a list for you, honestly. There, there's so many things, honestly. Oh, please do. <laughs> I, I will make a note of that for you. No, no problem. There, there are so many things that you could do. I know your time is limited here, but I, I will think long and hard about that one. Um, uh, no worries. <laughs> cool. Um, mentioning New Orleans, uh, one of the things on your kind of CV and, and your bio that kind of popped out to me is you worked on a quote unquote, a hyper opera called, mm-hmm. uh, Crescent City. And I was yes. wondering if you could tell me about that experience and just like, wh- what was that like for you? And a little bit about the opera itself. Absolutely. So Anne LeBaron, who is the composer, um, is also from Louisiana, mm. um, and Crescent City sort of evolved um, over the course of a few different operas, um, you know, basically just different approaches to this kind of question around water and its destructive capabilities. Um, it started off as an opera called Wet 
but it slowly sort of morphed and changed. And Wet premiered in Los Angeles, if I'm not misremembering it. And I didn't write Wet, um, but I assistant directed a production of it um, in 2005, in the winter of 2005. So it would have been the same year um, as Katrina. Mm. Crescent City um, builds on this sort of, you know, as you as you as you note, of course, like a kind of a, 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 a parallel to New Orleans, parallel universe version. And the basic story is that um, there was a devastating hurricane that struck Crescent City. And it's basically a year after, and another one is coming, and it's going to sort of finish the work of the first one. Yeah. And uh, Marie Laveau... Um, uh, is tasked with trying to save uh, uh, save Crescent City, and she enlists the help of several lois to try to do that. And it's basically the the story of these lois trying to find one good person um, in what's left of the city, uh, which is um, you know again sort of post apocalyptic at this point. Um, there's like this this group called the revelers who are sort of like the mean ads from, you know, Greek mythology who just kind of rampage around, um, um, partying, but also in a very kind of destructive way. And there are just a few sort of citizens still there holding on and lots of ghosts, um, working on that project. Um, I worked a lot with Yuval Sharon, Mm -hmm. who is the, uh, the head of a of a of an opera and performance company in Los Angeles called the Industry, and so working on that project, the it was the Industry's inaugural uh, production, and instead of using traditional sets, and this is something that was really interesting. Instead of using traditional sets, they commissioned I think it was seven visual artists to build installations. The opera. Um, the, the opera was set in this kind of warehouse space. And so you had these installations just up the entire time. So depending upon where you were sitting in the opera, you might be closer to one scene than another. Um, but it was sort of constantly happening. So, like, there's activity um, in, every, in every sort of stage space. Um, and you could come in the daytime and actually get a really close look at the at the at the installations themselves um but it was it was like a phenomenal experience working with that many different artists designers sound designers there was no uh there was a they 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 had these ipads that they were walking around with that had mixing software um built into them so the people were doing sound mixes live walking through the opera while you were watching it <laughs> yeah uh so I mean, it was just there's just so many different artists, so much happening. It was really that that hyper aspect of hyper opera, as Anne LeBaron's formulation is, is is an extraordinarily um, uh, interdisciplinary multimedia approach to opera making, which is already, of course, interdisciplinary. But this is like that interdisciplinary amped up to the nth degree. Yeah. Um, no, interesting. I, I'm interested in that kind of collaborative. Um, working like like framework because i know a lot of poets and a lot of writers kind of value their solitude and their time away do do you feel like you thrive in the collaborative effort or is it something you have to kind of strive for well 
when I do when I do when I work in opera, I work in any kind of more collaborative space. Yeah. I go in there knowing that that's what's going to happen. So it's kind of it's kind of a change from the way I usually work. Yeah. Um, so because I get to work, you know, on my own, um, I get to work, you know, in, in relative solitude a lot of the times so when I'm doing my poetry, um, you know, I'm just like in conversation with, I'm in conversation with friends and peers and like the tradition, of course, um, you know, and the people who've written before I've written, you know, I'm like responding to them and talking with them. But that's a very different, of course, way of imagining it. Yeah. So by the time I'm doing something in opera, or I'm doing something dramaturgical. There's a part of me that's like, hey, you know, let's let's go let's go work with some other people. Let's go see what happens when I'm not the person solely in charge of making the decisions. And opera, in particular, for uh, poets, is a is a fascinating space to be in because traditionally, the libretto of an opera, the text in the opera, was was not that like people didn't really care. Like I joke and say, like the librettist is like somewhere around the same position as the person who sweeps up after the show, <laughs> right? right? Like, you know, the composer, um, maybe a particular director, the vocalists, um, there might be a virtuoso, um, uh, you know, musician, a virtuoso, or virtual sex, uh, a musician, and all of those folks, you know, are accorded a great deal of, respect and 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 um and prominence in the process or in the production of the opera and the librettists oftentimes it it's uh, you know there was a book that i was reading called the tenth muse when i was preparing to write the first opera i ever wrote which was for my thesis actually at cal arts i just oh, kind wow. of decided to write an opera in a um counterfeit afro diasporic language so i had to make up the language and i had to learn about opera and, and all that kind of stuff for my thesis and um this book, The Tenth Muse, really informed a lot of what I've what I've learned about in terms of the position of the libretto and the librettist in the field of opera. And a part of why I liked working in opera is because the language was in this kind of space of like suspension. Like I was like, ah, you know, they're gonna say something. And so open. <laughs> like it was like it's really interesting to to be working in something that's a high stakes space, but that your part of it wasn't the high stakes. And that allowed me to do some things that I thought of as being somewhat subversive or, or um, you know, allowed me to ask certain questions um, about language and performance um, in a way that if it were like the feature, even in just a, a stage play, um, you know, a, a stage play that, that we're kind of familiar with in the West of being sort of like, okay, people are up on stage and they're speaking. Mm-hmm. Well, you're really alert to the dialogue. You're really alert to how they're verbally relating to each other. In opera, I mean, like, the, the language gets distorted. The language gets um, drowned out. The language gets suspended for dramatic action. You know, so, I mean, all of that stuff puts the language in this kind of precarious space, at least is the way I understand it, the way I've tried to write through it in the operas I've done since and, and all of that. Interesting. Um, do you have a favorite opera? Oh, wow. Um, I, I really enjoyed, um, you know, and, and this is, and, you know, some would, you know, consider this much lighter. Um, but I enjoyed the marriage of Figaro a lot. Yeah. I think that was that was that was that was an opera where I felt like I was enjoying myself. I mean my relationship to to opera, um, 
you know, I wouldn't call myself a connoisseur of it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I read tons of libretti during my thesis year. I've listened to a lot of it. And I have lots of questions about the operas I've experienced. I mean, one of my, one of my big questions is, um, you know, sort of idiomatically, like, you know, like if you have um, a libretto that's, that's sort of written in, say, U.S. American vernaculars or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, does that, does that, does that, like, is that the voice that you actually need? Yeah. <laughs> you know, at that moment, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, 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 what does that do? And so a lot of the ways that I think about, one of the things that I'm interested in with opera is like, okay, well, that's, you know, that's an aesthetic. That approach to singing is an aesthetic. So, what happens if we, um, you know, develop a different aesthetic? And I'm uh, an opera I, I I've I finished fairly recently, um, Dead Horses, which is a, a Western opera that I'm working on. My my cousin's a composer, and and so he's setting that. You know, one of the things I've I've talked about is like we need. I I cannot imagine this Western dialogue sung in that voice. Like we. We've got to come up with another system. Yeah. I went to see um, uh, Tom Waits' Black Rider and the Magic Bullets, and like I was really excited about that because I was like, okay, well, well surely like this will sound different. And that one was like all the singers just sound sang like Tom Waits, and so, yeah. and so which is great. I mean, you know, but also it's kind of like okay, so it it didn't sort of synthesize <laughs> Waits singing and transform it into something else, it was instead like people using weights singing as a way of approaching this material. So, you know, just, just trying to think about like what, what that would sound like, you know, how it would go. Interesting. That's, that's really fascinating because it's like, like an active participation in the evolution of the form, which is not dead. People like to say that opera is no. dead and the, the caricature of it, of course, is, is funny. Um, but that, that's really interesting to see, um, uh, the New Orleans Opera Association that we have down here celebrated their 75th anniversary this year, and they oh, put wow. on a um, performance of Terrence Blanchard's uh, mm-hmm. opera champion. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And, like, listening to snippets from that and being like, oh, this is what this this form can do. This is this medium is very far from being anything but dead. It's, it's never, it's not going to die as long as people are doing things like that. That's really interesting. Absolutely. No, I mean, and that's the thing, right? Like, like, like you know, my my that's why I was I wanted to like really punctuate like my experience of seeing uh, live productions um, or you know like listening is you know has been you know fairly limited and in some ways like that like that leads me to certain kinds of 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 excitement because I I'm not you know I I. I'm I'm basically I'm basically dumb enough to think that like oh well you know we could do this right yeah. <laughs> so, so it's like oh okay cool um, you know you know um, like but I think that opera as an approach right now with with you know the ability like like one opera that I that I've worked on also with Anne LeBaron uh, is an opera called Suction and like you can basically do it with a laptop it will basically do it. you do it with a laptop. <laughs> musician um a percussionist and a vocalist and then a musical vacuum cleaner and like i've seen it performed in a couple of spaces and it performs really well in like a nightclub or a cabaret type of space it lasts about 45 minutes and there you go right and for me that's like one of the really fascinating ways to think through opera 
Um, there's um, an opera that I really wanted to see that I was never able to see performed, Cornelius Eadie's The Running Man, mm. um, which you know, is like a, a jazz opera. I mean, there's an entire... Um, you know, an entire genre of jazz operas that I'm just like, oh man, I just need to see these performed. Um, I need to to see what happens in those kinds of spaces. And then you have like the sort of, you know, the historical, um, you know, like a piece like Porgy and Bess, where it's like people are saying, well, that's not an opera, it's, it's something else. <laughs> <laughs> like, and so, you know, I'm just really interested in what can happen when you can bring a digital projector and a laptop into a space and convert it into a theatrical space that's basically, you know, fully appointed. You know, these suitcase shows, I think that opera as a kind of an approach, you know, like a suitcase show opera, I think is really fascinating to think through. And I've been thinking about these things I've been calling micro operas, just operas that the entire thing would take less than 10 to 15 minutes to perform, like, you know, from beginning to end. Maybe sudden opera, I don't know if we want to call it that, or flash yeah, yeah. opera. Um, <laughs> And like imagining like writing about 10 of those and then, you know, having 10 different composers, you know, work with them. But, but you know, the, 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 the production, the, the, comp- the composition being sort of electronic so that theoretically a group could, you know, pick four, like three or four of these shorter operas and then do one 45 to one hour long opera um, and just sort of having sort of modular, um, modular performance in that way. And I find that to be really interesting, especially when you combine it with um, art forms like live film narration, um, you know, critical karaoke and different things like that. Yeah. No, interesting. That, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm excited to see some of those those work happen or to see what you do with that. Um, that's got to be exciting for you. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like, um, you know, that it's it's making the making the time for all the different things that, you know, you're working on and still... Like, you know, and of course, like the theater world um, is on a very different clock than the literary world. And so, you know, it's kind of balancing those sorts of things. Um, And, uh, you know, and like and like, you know, sort of, you know, you 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 know, if you have a family, you know, your family, you know, signed on for a certain kind of of time. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, yeah, you know, you know, when you're poeting, when you're poeming. You know, you could be home, you know, you just be up in, you know, like, you know, sitting at sitting at the, t- at the dining table. And as long as people are just kind of like hanging out, you're there and you're and, and, and you know, you're still a part of things. Yeah. But, you know, I've been working with a student doing some dramaturgy um, for their work. They're doing a production of Hamlet at CalArts. Oh, wow. And like, yeah, it's, you know, it's it's fantastic. But, you know, they start rehearsing at seven. They're done at 11. <laughs> And so, like you know, if I go to to if I go to see the show to see rehearsal, then that's like a big block of time, and that's just not the typical kind of poetry time, at least in my experience. Yeah. So it is exciting, and I mean, like, but you know, I'm also just sort of aware of like, okay, well, what am I actually going to be able to do, and when am I going to stop saying, yeah, I'm working on these <laughs> and actually getting them done? <laughs> but Dead Horses took about. I don't know, about 10 years to figure out how to write. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it started off being really satirical um, and just like, you know, just like trying to kneecap the Western, I think, as like a genre, you know. And then it it started going through these really different sorts of nuances and different approaches and modes. And then I finally figured out 
you know, what, what could do all the things that I wanted to do. But I also began to understand better for me how to think about writing in opera as a poetry, as a poet, um, that it's not for me, the language that is going to be the major poetic feature. It has to be the way poets mobilize images Hmm. in my head. What does the stage look like and how does that communicate something about the emotional, um, you know, the emotional context? And of course, you know, I can dream all I want about the stage, but, um, you know, if a designer, you know, goes, no, I'm not going to do any of that, then that changes things significantly. But at least it gives me a compositional anchor to work from that isn't just, you know, trying to deliver as much of the plot as possible through language that might ultimately be difficult to understand when, when, when sung. Yeah. No, I understand. That's interesting with those con constraints. Um, I'm interested in with, with working in so many different veins and projects. Uh, how do you discipline yourself to like focus on different things at different times or kind of arrange your schedule? Cause it, it, it seems like it could be really overwhelming on top of like the personal family responsibilities and, and relationships that you have to maintain and professional relationships. Like, have you found tricks through the years to kind of really help you navigate that? Um, there were times where I would find that um, I would basically, when I stalled for a second on any project, I would just turn and do the next thing. Yeah. So, you know, so it's kind of like, you know, spinning plates or something like that, you know, like when, when one thing isn't firing, you just do the next thing. Um, I mean, I think that people who have tried to, you know, like say cook a big formal dinner by themselves are probably the the best model. You'd kind of go, okay, that's boiling. All right. So now I can, I can, I can, I can, you know, I'll, I'll zest this lemon. Okay. Now I got to fry that, you know, like, like, like that kind of thing is, is how I try to think through it. Um, you know, the where it gets complex, I think the most complex part is when you're accounting for your hours doing these different things becomes sort of shared. So, like, you know, it's one thing for you to tell me, um, all right, you know, I need to have this many scenes written in this week, uh, in, in two weeks, and then somebody else is saying, all right, you know, can we see, um, you know, we want you to, to do this presentation. Um, and, you know, we're going to want you to have some written remarks and, you know, like all of that. And, and that can happen simultaneously. And the thing that I love about being a, a, a writer is that I can kind of go like, okay, yeah, I can, I can do all that. And then it's just sort of up to me when that happens within that time. Yeah. But the thing that's, pri- that's, that's, that's simultaneously a goad, but also like the biggest challenge, I think, is when, you know, meetings Right, we want to work on this together. You need to show us some material at this point. Mm-hmm. And then my my thought is oftentimes, well, you know, like we could meet for an hour, or <laughs> I could I could use this time blocked off, like you know, thirty five, forty minutes of writing, and then present you something, and we could talk about it for twenty minutes, Ooh. and then be you know, then be done. But the tricks of it are just like, you know, frankly, just not sleeping. To yeah. be honest. <laughs> it's just you spend time with your family, you say good night, you say good night to the last person who goes to bed before you, and then you just get started. Oh, wow. Or um, you. Yeah. Yeah. So you are, you are the night owl as far as your work for the most part, then? I used to be much better at that. Yeah. I used to be much better at just like not stopping. Oof. Now I'm more likely to. Um, you know, go to sleep, 
around midnight and then wake up at three or four and then get back to work. Interesting. Um, and it's gotten to the point now where I, I mean, if I don't, even if I don't set an alarm, like if there's something that I know I, I need to work on, I'm not gonna be able to like sleep past four in the morning. I'm gonna wake up. I'm gonna lie there for a second and go like, well, you know, it's time to get started on, you know, uh, get to get started on that essay or oh, it's, you know. You know, oh, that poem you wanted to revise. I think that it's you know it's calling. Or up, oh, you know, you gotta you gotta do some more um, work on the on the on a verse from this song cycle. Um, and then you know, there's just also like, oh, you didn't grade papers, or like, <laughs> you, <Yeah>. you, know, <laughs> you know, you know, you're leading a workshop today. You should probably review the poems. You know, like, like that kind of thing. So I mean, all of that stuff is is sort of happening. But um, for better or for worse, um, my my body has kind of synced up with like you know the sort of no the 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 noise and signal that's happening in my mind but i think that the, the but the ultimate trick really if there is one that i would say is i just if i like for me figuring out like i have to figure out you you got you got to break down whatever project you're doing, and it's like you know they're, they're massive, they're monumental, they're all these questions and concerns. Oh, what's the language? What's the approach? What's you know what am I going to discover? What's the length? What's the time restrictions? All those kinds of things. So for me, I spend a lot of time thinking about the kind of conceptual framing of the project. Yeah, and that's something that you can kind of have going in the back of your mind basically all the time. <laughs> so all the time I'm like you know I'm like sitting there oh, I'm you know ordering ordering breakfast for my kids and I'm sitting there going like, I was like but what about oh but what about this you know like maybe it's maybe it's more like this I mean there's a there's a set of poems in my last book Buck Studies called Ecce Caniculus hmm. and I basically had to write those poems for publication in the book um, uh, in in about a year's time um, which, you know, is whatever, but it had, there had to be 14 of them and they were being written partially to respond to, or to create tension with another series of poems I'd written in that book that were 12 poems long, but I'd written over the course of like four to five years. So like I had four to five years to write these first things. Then I kind of realized, uh Oh, I need to do something in response to those yeah. a year out before publication. And so in that time, I thought through literally everything from, oh, I'll write these poems, to, oh, maybe they should be an opera, to quite literally, David. Like at one point, I was like, maybe I just need to learn how to make stained glass windows. What? <laughs> so that I can make these stained glass windows, and then I can photograph the stained glass windows, and then I can put those in the book. <laughs> oh wow that is like so like like eight steps removed to like get to that that point oh wow <laughs> exactly but there were but 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 what happens then is like well i spent this time thinking about stained glass windows so suddenly all of these all this vocabulary around the technique of making stained glass windows suddenly enters my vocabulary and at one point you know, when I said, okay, I'm not going to have time to make stained glass windows, that's ridiculous. But what if I treat each poem like a stained glass window? And then I'm sort of like, okay, well, yeah, we could do that. And so I do all this additional research. And then the stained glass windows sort of creep into two or three of the 14 poems. Hmm. 
<laughs> like, like I found this glossary of terms from the of international terms from the game of marbles, like playing marbles. <laughs> because at one point I was like, oh, marbles, like I, like marbles are a part of this conversation, right? Yeah. And I spent hours and hours reading this glossary just to get the language, just to get the language, so I could be more specific or find the la- find a term that would capture all of what I needed to say, then every way I could think to say it was like, you know, six, seven syllables. Is there a term that's two? Is there a term that's two syllables that sounds like A? Is, you know, <laughs> like, and again, I spent hours doing that research and finding stuff all to get maybe two lines yeah. or two words. But that's worth it. Like that to me is worth it, right? Yeah. Because you're on to something. And so for me, I'm just constantly thinking of how I'm going to get into the poem. And once I write a draft that feels like, yeah, this is it. This is the linguistic register. This is, this is the kind of energy. This is the tone. Then I can be off to the races. Um, there's a, the longest poetry series I've worked on is a series of 16 poems. Uh, no, that's not 100% true, actually. It's one that I wrote that was 17 poems long. So like, but the one that is recent was like 16 poems. Again, you know, whatever, 16 poems. Um, They were all based upon uh, a Fred Moten concept, which was the natural history of inequality. And he had this list of 16 things on it. So I wanted to work with each of these different things. And it's something I was thinking about for three or four years. And I made several attempts to kind of get into them. Some of those got published, you know, like, and like, but I always kind of knew like, man, these aren't right. Like something's not quite right with them. And then a month ago, month and a half ago, um, I was doing a residency um, at LSU, actually. And I had a lot of time in the hotel, like to myself. And I wrote a draft that was like worked. I was like, this works. And so from four years, I guess, after I finally found that draft, I wrote the entire series in like two and a half weeks. Oh, wow. You know, Dead Horses, the, the, the opera that took 10 years to figure out. I wrote the entirety of the opera in about a week and a half after all of that time thinking through it. Yeah. So, so for me, like, it's just the constant thinking through how it's framed or how I'm going to, how I'm going to get into it. And then some of the ideas that fall away become useful for other projects. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's like, I'm just, I'm always thinking about how I'm going to do, <laughs> yeah, <these> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just always happening in there. Yeah. And, you know, it just, gets most complicated when there's an external deadline. But, you know, you know, external deadlines are a good constraint. They are, and you use them to your advantage like that, especially if you're you're thinking about these things consistently and, you know, kind of playing the weatherman role, just like waiting for the right conditions, and then you yeah, kind of latch yeah. upon it. Yeah. But, you know, but, you know, it's like the weatherman role, uh, if the weatherman could also, like, 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 like try to seed the cloud, Yeah, you know, like to be like, to be like, okay, we're going for snow, or like we're going for some kind of form of precipitation. You kind of go, okay, oh, that's hail. That's not quite right. All right, let me think about this. If it's not hail, what did I like about the hail? Well, I like that it comes down. Okay, that's good. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know like, all right, well, let's try rain. Oh, you know, not rain, you know. So it's like, it's waiting for the right conditions, but also like trying stuff. Yeah. It's like, it's like, well, let's see about this. And that to me is like, 
you know, something I tell students all the time is your first draft's only job is to not be your final draft. Yeah. That's its only job. So, like, make something, try something, and, and it at least will tell you, oh, this isn't quite it. Or maybe you'll luck out and be like, oh, this is close, right? But, but yeah, you know, like, you know, you got to just, you got to do something. Yeah. If it's the thinking through, you know, and then trying something that you thought, just, you know, getting something out to sort of work with it. Um, I think in most cases, we have the space to write a draft that may or may not work. I think in most cases we, we do. I, I won't I won't imagine that that's the case for every human being yeah. or in every circumstance or every moment. But I think more often than not, we have the opportunity to write a draft of something that we can then decide is close, not close, or something that surprises us in doing something completely different. Yeah, no, I get that. And it kind of leads me to my next question, um, dealing a lot in that last, a bit about strategies and about, you know, kind of formalizing and frameworks. Um, I subscribe to uh, Poets.org's Poem a Day um, newsletter, and there was one today by... um, Araceli's Germay and she's, yeah, 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 yeah. She in her, her explanation yeah. at the end, they do little explanations. She has she had this quote at the very end of it. I've been thinking about, and she said, um, "Probably I will be writing this poem for the rest of my life." And oh, yeah. yeah, I thought I thought that was beautiful, and I, I wanted to talk to you about that and and see if there's a certain like poetic idea or a cer- certain thing that's really stuck with you that you're either really trying to formulate into a poem every time and continually doing, or that you're always writing variations on? Oh, that, oh, wow. That's such a great question. I mean, certainly mm, one of the things that I think about a lot is human capacity for cruelty. Yeah. Um, I think I write about that a lot. Um, I think I write a lot about the idea of the intersection of violence and entertainment a lot. I think that I think that that's really the the thing. Violence and entertainment. Yeah. How they how they um overlap and and that to me allows me to write about, you know, write what I'm thinking about um um you know like performance and being a performer, like, you know, like writing poems about performers or, 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 or thinking through performance or writing essays about that kind of thing. Um, you know, and so, and, and I think that that becomes a thing that I, that I'm, that I'm constantly going back to, um, you know, um, there, there is a, there is there, there are times where I, where I, where I do feel self-conscious um, and feel like, okay, well, you know, let's 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 do something a little bit different. And I'm fully aware of like that's not necessarily what you know any poet is called to do. Yeah. You know, any writer isn't necessarily called to like you know keep coming up with new ideas and new stuff. Like that's not necessarily what is required. Um, as much as it might just be a deepening understanding or deepening not understanding but a deepening inquiry into um you know into existing work uh or or exist or an existing theme but yeah yeah i would say i would say that's that's it i mean like 
violence and spectacle, violence and, and entertainment, or maybe it's how the how the spectacular is often centered around violence. I would I would I would say that a lot. And like you know, um, I think that you know, as as an African American uh, writer and somebody who grew up in Los Angeles, um, Los Angeles area, this is like particularly interesting to me because at one level. You know, you watch the video of the police officers, you know, beating Rodney King. That mm-hmm. is spectacle and violence. You know, you listen to gangster rap. That is, you know, spectacle and violence. You know, the Western as a film genre is what kept, you know, Hollywood going for years. You know, again, spectacle, violence, sports, spectacle. It's all, you know, like the car chases, the, you know, that are broadcast on the news, you know, all of that. Um, I just feel really... I don't know. Like that's, I feel like that's the field I work in. Yeah. Um, most of all. Interesting. That's really an interesting answer. Um, I, I know our, our time is short, so I want to ask you one more thing. Um, what what work are you most proud of at this point? Is there a single poem or, or anything that you worked on that you are really just happy with, like solid with? Is anything come to mind? Raising my kids. Yeah. I love my children. Yeah. Like, that's, <laughs> like you know. Um, but if I, if I had to pick something that I've written, uh, wow. Um, I mean, that's hard. I mean, like I, I feel good when I've, when I feel like I've been able to communicate an idea or to capture something, um, uh, in a way that's clear. Um, or or the right kind of Merck, right? Yeah. But I really try to think about, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? <laughs> um, you know, I I I was concerned before my before I ever published a book. I always used to tell myself, look, you know, like you should have like two or three books written, so that when the first book gets published. Um, if people like like it and, and pay compliments, I won't then just write a second version of that same book trying to get those compliments. Yeah. Right. Then I'll be like, okay, well then I'll I'll, I'll the second book will already have been written. I won't know whether or not anybody was going to like anything, right? And so it'll just be kind of in this sort of space, of like, well, this is what I wrote in a kind of a vacuum of 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 not knowing what was going to be the most, um, you know important um or uh you know or, or i shouldn't say the most important but the most the, the the work that people were like oh yeah this is like this is good work yeah. like more of this um you know it didn't work out like that like i didn't have you know two three books down but what i did was i just kind of like when i finished fearsome you know i do readings from it but i was just like okay gotta do the next thing gotta yeah. do the next thing um i like I like things that I've that I've written. I I enjoy them, um, you know. Or I or I like watching how the kind of typographic work has changed, you know. But you know, I also can look at it and be like, ah, oh, man, you know, like, you know, everything's still on like lines, you know. Like you're still on the grid. You just kind of turn to the grid, but you know. So like, <laughs> so like, I'm I'm I tend to look at the work and kind of see. Not in like, it's not tortured. It's not like, oh, it'll never be good. But I just tend to look at it and go like, okay, this is what I learned by doing that. How can I, um, 
how can I take this further or what's a different way of exploring it? Yeah. So I think more than any individual piece, if I were to say I'm proud of anything, I guess I would say that I am proud of the fact that poetry um, has been that that I have been able to open myself up enough to the demands of the poems that generally speaking what I feel needs to happen or what I feel like I need to explore or what I feel like I need to learn is more important than like me just making sure I, I, I replicate, you know, something that I would think of as a success. Yeah. Like I, I am proud of my ability to commit to poetry as a pursuit. And when I say I'm proud of my ability, I don't mean like I am proud that I have this skill set. <laughs> no, I feel because I didn't expect that I would commit to anything like that. I didn't, you know, next, except, you know, like, you know, human relationship, yeah, but, like, to a pursuit. So I don't know if pride is the right word. It's it's just, I'm, 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 I'm glad that I don't feel like I've gotten there yet. I'm glad I don't feel like I've gotten there yet. I'm glad I feel like, you know, that 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 there are more questions and maybe better questions or just I'm just willing to follow these questions you know I'm glad that I'm glad that folks have come along with me on this trip cuz I didn't expect it you know yeah I, I didn't expect people to be interested you know um you know not for as long as they have um you know not in the ways that they have um so I, I I don't think I can take credit for any of that as much as I can just say like wow like like poetry is so capacious and I'm 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 honored that I can participate in it in a way that might mean something more than to just me but I, I don't think that's pride. I, I just think I just feel like blessed. Yeah. No, I think that's a that's a solid answer, and uh, I think we'll, we'll end it there. Um, Douglas, thank you so much for your time, for being so generous with it. It's been a true pleasure getting to talk with you. Oh, likewise, David. I can't wait to to see you down there and to get my list. Yes, <laughs> I will not forget about the list. Do not worry about that. That was poet, performer, and librettist Douglas Kearney, who you can see read live on Saturday at Siberia Lounge on St. Claude Avenue at 7 p.m., along with the poets Carolyn Hembry, Tanya M. Foster, and several poet-led bands as part of the New Orleans Poetry Festival, which is going on this weekend. You can find more information about that at noladpoetry.com. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. And you can stream us on our website, wrbh.org. 
You can listen to an extended version of this interview by going to our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.